the beginning of chapter 12 really sets us up for the rest of the Gospel of John simply because from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, you've been dealing with basically three and a half years of Jesus' life. From chapter 12 to the end, you're dealing with six days of his life. Okay, so you, you can tell when you get to chapter 12, everything slows way down and John starts giving you very minute details about things that are happening in those last six days. So literally, as you begin chapter 12, six days from now, Jesus is dead. He's in the, he's in the grave. And so um, you've got to really start paying attention to the themes that John has been introducing over these first 11 chapters because they keep coming over and over again back into it in these last few chapters. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 12. And it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, first of all, it introduces us, and it kind of sets that theme of Passover. So whenever you see that, of course, you know Passover is the week that Jesus dies. He dies as the Passover lamb. So within six days, he's going to be on the cross dying and then being buried into the tomb. So this is the last week and everything just kind of amps up at this point. And he gives us that context and it says that Jesus came to Bethany. Now Bethany is not too far outside of Jerusalem. And this is probably when in the other uh, narratives, uh, even in John where they talk about Jesus leaving every day, that he came to the temple each day of Passover and then he left every day. More than likely, Bethany is probably where he went to. Some people believe that he went to the Mount of Olives, but it would be odd for him to sleep there every night in the Mount of Olives. So more than likely, he was going back to Bethany. And there was this occasion that um, Mary and Martha got together and said, we're going to throw a banquet, basically, for Jesus. And we're going to invite our friends, and we're going to invite his friends, and we're going to have him over, and we're going to have just this big to-do for Jesus. Now, Obviously, that probably had something to do with Lazarus and them showing their appreciation for what Jesus had done. But I think it was even beyond that, not just, hey, thanks for raising my brother from the dead. It was more of what you did solidified in our minds. There's no doubt that we have at all that you are the Son of God and that you are the Messiah and that you have come to redeem your people. And so it was more of this recognition. This was pre-planned, I believe, from the very get-go. And I even think what Mary does in this passage is pre-planned. I don't think it's spontaneous at all. I think that she knew what she was going to do. She, she planned it and she executed it perfectly. Okay, It was in her heart to do this. Um, and this dinner was a private dinner. But you're going to see that it ends up not being a private dinner. Why? Well, because of everything that's happened. And imagine he introduces it being Passover week. Think about all the pilgrims that have come from all over the ancient world to celebrate Passover. So you're talking about Jerusalem being packed like Jerusalem is never packed all year long. This is the busiest time. And with all of that expectation and all of the stories that are circulating about Jesus, there are people that, even as they're trying to have this dinner, there are people literally just outside waiting to see Jesus and waiting to see Lazarus because they want to lay eyes on him. All right. Now, what I'm going to do is do something a little bit odd because staying in the theme of that, I want to go to the end of the passage that we're going to look at, deal with those last few verses because I want to really, for the heart of what I want to talk about today, I want to look at the act that Mary did there as the theme and the thrust of what we're going to talk about tonight. So if you will, let your eyes kind of drop down to verse 9, and it's actually a pretty easy 
um, transition from verses 1 and 2 to verses 9 because he introduces us the time Passover that they're having this banquet that Jesus is invited to they're honoring him and then verse 9 says when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there meaning uh, at the house of Simon this isn't actually happening at Lazarus's house this is at the house of Simon when they found out he was there they came not only on account of him but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So it was the story of Lazarus that's beginning to circulate. And as that story is so impactful, now a lot of people who may have been on the fence going, well, you know, we've heard these stories about Jesus, but we don't really know. Now all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, this has to be him. And so now they're gravitating to him in droves. So the religious leaders are beginning to lose their power and their position. So they're like, we've got to do something about this. And as I read that passage, I find it both interesting and uh, humorous, maybe even a little bit ridiculous. Uh, I think it's hilarious because you see the illogical thinking of these Pharisees and these religious leaders. I mean, can you imagine the conversation? And they're thinking, you know what? Lazarus is, is really starting to pull a lot of people away. Yeah, he's walking around telling everybody how he was raised from the dead. I know, that's ridiculous. And if we don't stop him, do something, um, you know, he's just going to keep pulling more and more people away. I mean, we don't only have to deal with Jesus now. Now we got to deal with Lazarus. What do you think we're going to do? I think we should kill him. Isn't that what got us into the place to begin with, is that he was already dead once, and he rose from the dead, and our solution is to put him back in the grave? What are you going to do? Give Jesus another opportunity to show? So it just shows you how sin makes you so stupid. I mean, it really does. When you embrace your rebellion, when you embrace your sin, when you embrace your rejection, it makes you stupid. You start thinking illogical thoughts. It doesn't make any sense. And these are not dumb people. I mean, these are the religious leaders. This is the intelligentsia of Israel at the time, and they can't come up with a better plan than to do something that Jesus has already proven that he has power over. So again, it's just, it's ridiculous when you see what the thought process becomes for those who have rejected Christ. Now, beyond that, there's some interesting aspects to it. The interesting part is that people were so interested in seeing Lazarus. Um, he'd become somewhat of a celebrity at this point. So a lot of people, they've heard of Jesus, and, but they've gone not to see Jesus, but they want to see Lazarus. They want to lay eyes on him. I think it's probably almost like a, a, they're, they're expecting he's going to look like a zombie. You know, like he's dead for four days, but he rose from the dead. What does he look like? Does he look partly decayed and yet he's still alive? Does he look fully alive? They just want to see for themselves because there's probably all kinds of rumors that have been spread. There's probably all kinds of uh, their own uh, ill-conceived ideas that they have in their minds that they're trying to figure out what does he look like. So he had become a celebrity and everybody wanted to see him. Now John mentions that a lot of people had begun to believe and had begun to follow Jesus because of Lazarus, because of his testimony. And obviously this is why the religious leaders uh, feel like they have to intervene in, in such a way as to kill him. But the question remains, I think, really, when you read that is, were these genuine conversions? Were these people who were following Jesus because he had done something fantastic? Or were these people who, like earlier in John, we see, well, they, they, they're there whenever something exciting is going on, and then they pull away whenever it isn't. And number one, I think when you get to this point in the Gospel of John, that these conversions are quite different. Here's why. You're, you're going to see people who have weighed out a long uh, 
you know, series of evidence. These aren't people who are just now being introduced to Jesus. They see one thing and they respond. These are people that have heard stories. They've heard the religious leader side of it. They've seen multiple miracles on Jesus's part. These are people that have been able to hear multiple testimonies. They've been able to think about and consider these things for a longer period of time. So the closer you get, I think the more genuine the conversions are. And I would also say that John doesn't give us anything in this passage to make us believe that these weren't genuine conversions. They weren't people who were generally believing in Jesus. Now, with that said, when you get to this week and the end of this week, everybody's an unbeliever. I mean, there's just not a whole lot of people who are going to stay with Jesus to the very end. And that includes his disciples. I mean, of all the disciples, the writer of this gospel is the only one that's there at the cross. So it's hard to talk about genuine conversion and a conversion that's not genuine when it seems like at the very end, everybody turns on Jesus. So I think it's safer to just look at genuine conversions after the cross and not before the cross, because at that point, that's where it's solidified that Jesus defeats death, hell, and the grave. And from that point on, you see less of that you know, roller coaster ride of faith being demonstrated. So with that being said, I think that's the heart of that last, those last few verses. I wanna go back and pick up with where we left off and really look at what happened at that dinner, all right? So let's pick back up again with verse one. Just for context, we'll read verse one and two, and then we'll slide into verse three. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, I want to say this. There's a lot of so if you go and read this and research this, you'll find that there's a lot of disagreement about exactly how this matches up with the other gospels and where this fits in the time frame of things and, and, and Mary's intentions and what she was doing. But I will just tell you, this is my perspective after reading what everyone believes. I believe this event and the event that we're familiar with where Martha's working really hard and Mary's at the feet of Jesus and Martha complains about Mary not helping her and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, why do you trouble yourself with many things? I think this is the same event, okay? The reason is, it also mentions that Martha is serving. So we have that same picture that Martha's over there and she's doing all the work. And then again, we have a picture of Mary at the feet of Jesus in this passage, okay, which is the same thing that we have in the other passage. And Lazarus is there and he's reclining at the table. And I think one of the reasons he's reclining at the table is because this is to honor Jesus and one of the greatest guests of honors is the one that he brought out of the grave. And so there he is with Jesus next to him. So to me, that is what makes the most sense that this is one and the same of that other event that we're so familiar with where Jesus kind of chastises Martha for working so hard hard and not just sitting down and listening and absorbing and being in the moment, okay? So with that being said, verse three, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now, nard is a really weird word, but it's, it's a muskroot extract. Muskroot grows in the Himalayas. It only grows at high elevations. The only place you can find it in the world is in India and a few places in China uh, where they have a high elevation there, but mostly from India, the, the largest amount of it comes from India, comes from the Himalayas there. So that's the only place in the world you can get it. That's why it's so expensive. And they took this muskroot extract and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled 
with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, again, remember, John is not just telling you a story. He's not just giving you details about something so that you're caught up with what's happening. He's intentional. He tells things in a way that's very symbolic. So when, especially when you get to this time, when you're in the Passion Week, you have to slow down and pay attention to what are the details that he's given us. And really, you really have to consider what are the details that he's leaving out? Because whatever he's leaving out is really even more emphasizing the things that he gives to us. So that's what I want to pay attention to tonight. First of all, it says that it was a pound of this musk root extract. It is incredibly expensive, okay? And the reason it's incredibly expensive is because it does come from India, and um, it has to make this long journey. You think about that day and time, how far the Himalayas are from Israel, okay? So this had to make a long journey from once it was made down the Silk Road, make its way to the Middle East, and then purchased by someone there, and then they've probably been holding on to it for a long period of time. Also, it tells us that there was a pound of this. Now, when you do all the translations and you bring it into our context, you're talking about a liquid and a liquid of roughly 11 to 12 ounces. So you can imagine like a little Coke bottle, right? That full of a very expensive perfume. And ultimately, what Mary does is she takes the top off of this, which the way this was constructed back in, in the first century was it would be completely concealed or, or sealed where um, there's no way to open it. Okay, so that's the way they would keep it and preserve it. Now, whenever you wanted to use it, you had to break the top of it off. And usually they had these very long, skinny necks. And once you broke it, you didn't necessarily have to use all 12 ounces but the neck was really skinny and long, and they would just break off a top of it, and they would cork it. And then they would break off a top of it and cork it, and they would break off a top of it and cork it. But once you open it that first time, the shelf life has now been incredibly decreased, okay? But as long as you kept it intact without breaking it, then you could keep it for a long period of time. Matter of fact, it could be something that could be passed down for generations and actually hold its value over a very long period of time. Okay, so once it's broken, though, your shelf life begins to decrease, and you can't keep it that much longer. And apparently, Mary, when she breaks this, she doesn't just break the top of it and give a little bit to Jesus. She breaks it, and she pours this entire thing. She empties its contents onto him. Now, again, I think this is extravagant. John uses the word expensive ointment, but his term expensive is nothing like our term expensive. When we use the term expensive, we mean we spend more than what we anticipated to spend, or we spend more than what we would regularly. Well, that was an expensive dinner. So in other words, maybe when you and your family go out, it only costs $70 for everybody to eat, depending on how large your family is. And this time you went out and it was $250, okay? Well, you went to a really nice restaurant. You let the kids order from the adult menu and everybody got a dessert that day, okay? So you're like, that was an expensive meal. That is not what John is talking about here. The word translated expensive means extravagant. It means above and beyond. It means like this is ridiculously expensive. It would be like me going out and buying a car that costs more than what I make in a year. Okay, it's that kind of extravagant. If I did something like that, y'all would all be going, what in the world is he doing? That's ridiculous. Has he lost his mind? That's why you see this kind of reaction. It's extravagant what she's doing right here. And the other picture we have there is they're all reclining at the table. That's important to see as well because it tells us 
that Lazarus was reclining with him. Okay, so Jesus is reclining. Now, remember again, especially in events like this, like Passover, very special events, they have these tables. The tables were basically um, set up in a U format so that everybody around the table could see everybody else. And um, they would lie down at the table, so there were pillows all around it. The tables only sit about two feet off the ground, so they don't have chairs like, like we sit in and you pull yourself up to a table and you have a knife and a fork and all those kinds of things. They would lie down, and they would lie down on their side, and they would just kind of eat from the table, and they would recline, and they would talk, and they had enough pillows that they were kind of propped up a bit, but it was a, it was a pleasure to recline in that day and time. It was actually a sign of freedom, too. Only free men recline, okay? So it was a, a status symbol as well. So they're reclining there, and the reason that's important is to understand that as Mary approaches Jesus, Jesus is in this recumbent position where his feet are over here and his head is over here. He's not up this way where he's sitting straight up and down. He's lying down, okay? The reason that's important is because there's another gospel that tells the same event, and it says that Mary, when she does this, she anoints his head with this expensive ointment and perfume. So the picture that you have when you put these two together is Jesus is lying there, and Mary comes up and breaks this vase that has this in it, and she literally begins to pour it over his entire body from head to feet. Okay. Now, John focuses on the feet because, again, he leaves out details to emphasize certain details, okay? Because that's where she really begins to show her affection and adoration of Jesus is really focused on his feet. Now, we'll get to that in just a second, but I wanted to get that visual picture of 11 ounces starting at his head and pouring all the way down. Now, again, let me tell you, this was some really strong perfume. You've been to the old Baptist churches where all the old ladies are there and you walk in and you know you're in one of those churches as soon as you walk in the back door because immediately you smell it. You know what I'm talking about, right? This was way, way more intense than that. Um, this kind of, of, of perfume that they're mentioning here. Uh, so in this day and time, travelers would travel for long periods of time and they wouldn't take a shower or anything. They didn't have the ability to do that. They didn't have water that was just readily available for someone to bathe. So you would think uh, people would travel for days and then be at someone's house and as soon as they get there, they have to sit down for dinner. So what they would use this for a lot of times is they would anoint people's heads with oil. They'd put it right inside their hair or lack thereof, and they would just kind of put it up in that little, and it would actually, it was so strong, it would kind of conceal any body odor or anything like that because it was so strong. So that's the way they would deal with that in, in that time period. So the fact that, G, that uh, Mary pours this out over the whole body of Jesus, can you imagine how that smell just immediately uh, became so powerful in that room that even people on the outside would have been able to begin to sense this and smell this. And the text uh, alludes to that as well. Now, again, John focuses on one part of what Jesus has anointed, and that is his feet. Although she would have probably used it not all 11 ounces on his feet because that would have been like saturated. I think that's the picture that we have to have is she poured the whole thing out, but the reason she's able to use the whole thing is because she's going from head to feet. Now, John focuses on the feet, I believe, because of the significance of this event. Now, here's the thing. The feet, as we talk and think about ourselves, the feet are the lowest part of the body. Not only physically, because you're like, duh, that's easy to figure out, but the lowest part of the body in the sense of first century 
that was the dirtiest part of the body. Because remember, they traveled on the Roman roads. They walked long, long distances. And that was mainly the, the, the most common mode of travel was walking. And they would walk on these dusty roads and they would get covered. The only thing really not covered by their garments are their feet. Okay? And they would kick that dust up. Now, they also walked down these Roman roads where all the different soldiers would have gone down and uh, all the more wealthy people who have horses and things of that nature. And so there's animal feces all over the road too. And this has all just kind of gotten caught up into the dust and grime of the dirt. So literally, once you've traveled to wherever you're going, your feet are covered in muck and dust and disgustingness, okay? That's why it's very common in that day that when you would show up somewhere, they would wash the feet of people. It wasn't so much that washing the feet was a sign of humility, which it was because only a servant or someone would do that, but it was because it was a necessity because that's how dirty people's feet were. As much as we may get obsessed with hand washing, they were obsessed with foot washing because that was the dirtiest part of the human body. All right, you got that in your head? Okay, so again, John is emphasizing the feet of Jesus, the lowest, dirtiest part of Jesus' body, okay? Then what is, what's amazing is it tells us that Mary began to wipe his feet after anointing his whole body with this oil. She focuses in on the feet, and she does something where she begins to wipe his uh, feet with her hair, now, where is the hair? This is a quiz. If you don't pass this, um, you're not allowed to come to church anymore. Is it at the top or the bottom? Okay, some of you are still hesitant. They're like, oh, I don't know if I should answer this. It may be a trick question. No, it's at the top, all right? You're like, he's tricking us because he don't have hair. He's going to come up with something different. No, but um, it is at the top. So do you see the picture of top and bottom? The bottom being the feet of Jesus, the top being Mary's hair. That's significant. Not only that, it's significant that she's using her hair because for her to use her hair in first century context, she first has to let her hair down. They didn't let their hair down, okay? They had it kept up and they had it hidden because that was customary in that day and time. So when, when Mary goes to wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair, and I'm not meaning to be crude here, but it would be... Something like if, if a woman came up here and put her foot up on this chair and just pulled her dress up to her thigh, how shocking that would be. That's as shocking as this was when Mary let her hair out and let it down in front of all of the people that are there to have that dinner. Okay? Now, the difference would be when someone would do something like that, you're like, what are you doing? Mary's is more she broke those cultural norms, but when you begin to see what she's doing, you see she had to do it to do what she's doing, okay? So she wasn't doing it to be shocking. She was doing it because the only way to wipe someone's feet with your hair is you have to extend the hair. And so that's what she's doing. And there's this picture that she doesn't care what anybody else thinks. She doesn't care if they think that this is extravagant. She doesn't care if they think that she's crossing cultural norms by letting her hair down. She only cares about one thing, and that is honoring her Savior and her Lord and acknowledging to him that she truly believes that he is who he said that he is, that there's no doubt in her mind. So she gives the greatest sacrifice and the greatest display of affection and adoration and worship that a person can give. So she literally gets down at his feet. She lets her hair down and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Again, the symbolism is powerful. In that day and time, and I would argue even in our day and time, 
but literally in that day and time, they said a woman's hair is her, does anybody know what the, how it finishes? A woman's hair is her glory. Yes, it's her glory. So it is this picture that she spends more time on her hair than she spends on any other part of her body. Um, she spends time combing it, washing it, brushing it, um, buying expensive things to put into it. Can I get an amen, men? Uh, yeah, that, I mean, all the products, whatever is the most available, finding those things that just keep it shiny and keep it healthy. And so a woman's hair is her glory. So think about what Mary's doing. She's taking the most glorious thing that she possibly has, and she applies it to the most lowest, dirtiest part that Jesus has. That's why she's being intentional about it. She is saying, your very worst deserves my very best. And that is the powerful picture that she paints here. Jesus's worst is worthy of our best. And then he tells us that the house was filled with this fragrance. And I think John's being intentional there, not just you know that this was so powerful and aromatic that it just filled the room. I think John is saying that no one there could deny the element and level of worship that was being displayed there. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you can't ignore what's happening. You, you, you couldn't just pretend that you didn't see it or that you weren't aware of what was going on. You were faced with someone else's unabashed devotion and worship of another human being. I mean, the air was filled with the fragrance of her worship is what John wants you to understand. It was undeniable. And there's also this incredible focus that John is drawing our attention to in the way that he relays certain details and he leaves other details out. And that is one of the uh, other pastors uh, at our other campus, Kyle uh, and many of y'all have met Kyle. You've met him maybe through um, the Ecclesia Academy, or you've been here when he's taught here. He doesn't come here very often anymore, but in the early days of Mars Hill, Kyle was what Neil does now. I mean, he was the one who came over when I wasn't here. So many of you may have remembered him. But anyway, Kyle is, is a um, very academician um, but he also loves to find chiasms everywhere, okay? He believes they exist everywhere. He looks for them. He goes to the bathroom. He looks for somebody writes on the bathroom wall. He's looking for a chiasm there, okay? And a chiasm is basically when an author writes, especially Jewish authors write, and they write in this kind of structure where they're trying to draw your attention to something, okay? So it, it follows this like almost like an ABC format or an AB format, and it would be like A and A talk about the same thing. And in between A and A, you'll see B and B, and they talk about the same thing. And then sometimes there's a C in the middle, and that's what they want you to focus in on. And the way they draw your attention to it is because they're repetitious with A and A, B and B. So they say something, they say something, they say what they want to say, and backing out, they repeat and they repeat again. And that's the way they draw your attention to it. I know it sounds kind of weird, but I want to show you that he found what he believes is the chiasm here. And I think that he's right in this because there is this structure that John has set up here, especially talking about Mary, that he's given to us twice now that I think he wants us to see. And so it goes a little bit like this. There is the death of Lazarus, right? We have that death of Lazarus. And at the death of Lazarus, Jesus shows up and he shows up too late. Mary stays while Martha runs out. But then Martha comes back and says to Mary, he wants to see you, but Jesus was still outside the city. So Mary runs out there, and John stops and gives us detail and says that Mary does what? She falls at the feet of Jesus, and she is weeping, and she is sorrowful, and she says, Lord, if you had only been here, 
my brother would not have died. Okay? Of course, we know what transpires after that, and that's the resurrection of, of Lazarus. And then what do you see right after the resurrection of Lazarus? The next picture of Mary is she's falling at the feet of Jesus again. But this time she doesn't bring her sorrow. She doesn't bring her broken heart. She brings a sacrifice that is gaudy. She brings a sacrifice that is extravagant. And she gets down and she worships him in the sense of taking the very best that she has and applies it to the very worst that he has in a way of honoring him. And then what's going to transpire in six more days? The death of Jesus. So you have a death and a death. And those bookend Mary falling at the feet of Jesus two different times. The first time in utter destruction and in utter sorrow. And that's all she has to bring. But the second time she comes to him, she doesn't bring her sorrow. She brings a sacrifice that is extravagant. What a beautiful picture of what life does to us when Jesus brings life into our life. And this is a picture of the gospel. You know, when we first come to Jesus, we come in our brokenness. We come to him with absolutely nothing. And in our nothingness, he breathes life into us. And once he breathes life into us, if you really understand the gift that you've been given, you don't come back with little trinkets to give to him. You come back and say, everything I have is yours. You are the son of God. You have paid my sin debt. You have extended to me uh, an invitation to be a part of the family of God. You have given me eternity. There's nothing that I would hold back from you. And that is this picture of this extravagant kind of love and devotion that the gospel should call us to, that we should recognize in our life. But a lot of times we don't. I think it's important to understand that Mary does everything in her power here to give glory to Jesus. And Jesus receives the glory that she wants to extend to him. He doesn't deny her that. We see that as the passage unfolds. And I think that's important to see because what John tells us next is actually the antithesis of that. So the first thing is you have a woman who comes in in all of her glory and she lets her glory down and she applies her glory to the lowest part of Jesus' body. Okay? And then John gives you another picture. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Okay, so you go from a person who is giving glory to Jesus to a person who wants to steal glory from Jesus. Do you see those two characters? And John pits both of them together, almost like he wants you to reflect and say, which one are you? Are you a glory giver or are you a glory stealer? And Judas is obviously this glory stealer. I think it's amazing that whenever you find Judas mentioned in the Gospels, doesn't matter where it is, they always tag him with what happened at the end of his life. Did you know that? It's almost like as they write these gospels post-resurrection that none of them can reflect on anything that Judas ever said or ever did apart from what he did at the very end. And so they was like, Judas is walking down the street and picked up an apple. You know the guy who betrayed Jesus at the end? I mean, they always like tag that onto it. And it's like they can't think of anything he did apart from what he was known for there at the very end. And I think that's kind of powerful and it's sad that that becomes his legacy 
That becomes what he is known for beyond anything else. So the verse provides us with this clear indication of how expensive this perfume really was. John has told us it's extravagant, it's expensive. Now all of a sudden we get a picture of it because Judah says, why was this not sold for 300 denarii? Now, when you understand that in that day and time, one denarii was a day's wage, you're talking about a year's salary is what that ointment cost. And people who are way smarter than me do the calculations, and they said in our day and time, the cost of this would be $30,000. $30,000 she takes, she breaks it, and she just pours it onto his body. Anybody there, I'm, I'm just telling you, it's very easy to be judgmental of Judas, but I think that there was more than people, more people there than just Judas who were having the same thought. Matter of fact, the other gospels tell us that the other disciples chimed in and were like, yeah, we could have fed a whole lot of homeless people with that. Um, you know, it, they're just sitting there going, that was, that was too extravagant. That was too much. That was too wasteful because that's like over a year's salary for someone that you just poured out. I mean, think about what we could have done with that. And that's their perspective. Of course, John lets us know that Judas was not interested in feeding the poor. He was interested in putting money in his own pocket. Why? Because not only does he steal glory from Jesus, he's literally been stealing from Jesus and the disciples because he's the one that's been keeping the money bag. And like John says, they knew probably post-resurrection and after Jesus already killed himself, uh, they found out that he had been stealing money the whole time. So that's probably why they write with him with that animosity. Not only did he betray Jesus, but he also had been stealing from them the entire time they were walking around. And uh, one commentator puts it this way. He says, either way, Judas displays a certain utilitarianism that pits pragmatic compassion, concern for the poor against extravagant, unqualified devotion. If self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, we must also admit with shame that social activism even that which meets real needs sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. With Judas Iscariot, the case is far worse. His personal greed for material things masquerades his altruism. Do you see what that author is saying there? He's saying a lot of times, you know, it's easy for us to look at religious people and go, look at them. All they care about is their church and all they care about is their congregation and their nice building and their this and their that. And they don't, they don't ever minister to the poor around them. They don't care about other people's needs. We hear that a lot, don't we, about churches. But what he's saying is if we admit that that's true, you also have to admit the other side is true, that there's a lot of people out there that are doing a lot of good things but they're not doing it in the right spirit. They're doing it for their own personal benefit. They're doing it because they get the accolades. And the truth of it is this, and I think that's what this author is hitting at. Inside of each one of us is this void, this void that exists that can only be filled by God. But here's the thing. If you reject God, you've got to fill that void with something. Why? Because we're all created to worship, and we're all going to worship something. So you're going to fill that void, and you're going to worship something. And what happens a lot of times is people end up worshiping that kind of service. They worship being compassionate. And so what they do is they focus their attention on the marginalized, and they fight the fight of the marginalized, and they become the crusader for the marginalized. Why? Because they care about the marginalized? 
Most of the time, it's not. It's because they care about themselves. It's because they are a way of elevating themselves or they are a way of enriching themselves. And so what they do is they use someone, they use a platform, they use a group of people to bring attention to themselves so they can use that to their own benefit. And that's what he's saying there. And so Judas puts up this this masquerade of being very altruistic and being compassionate and caring about the poor when in reality what Judas cared about was his own self. Because here's a guy who looks at what Mary does and says, Jesus isn't worth that kind of sacrifice. And within about three days, he's going to sell Jesus for $800. That's his value system. Do you see that? He cares so little about human life that he would sell the person that he's been walking with and close to for three years, selling for $800 while complaining, that's too extravagant. It tells you how much he valued Jesus. And that's the picture I think that John wants to draw our eyes to. Again, all this goes back to the shepherd motif back in chapter 10. I think that's really for me, as I've studied this for the first time verse by verse. You know, I've studied John many times uh, in my history of being a pastor, But this is the first time I've ever gone verse by verse. And I'm telling you, it has come alive studying it verse by verse and slowing down. And one thing that I've never seen before is how powerful that little monologue that Jesus gives to the religious leaders about him being the good shepherd. And what I did was I started paying attention to the details that he gave. And what I see is all the details that Jesus gives in that, John then goes and shows you exactly what happens after that, that the thief fulfills every one of those details. So if you go back, if you think about it, I'm not going to go back and read the whole thing. We don't have time, but go back and read it sometime and look at what he says. He says, I am the good shepherd. Then he says, there are those who don't come to the gate because they're not the true shepherds. They come over the rails. They come in, they drop in. They're not, they don't have the sheep's best interest in mind. He's talking about the religious leaders. But then he also says that he's the good shepherd that he calls out to his sheep, right? He says, I know them and they know me. They know my voice. They recognize my voice. I call them by name and they come out to me, all right? Now, think about this. A little bit later on, what happens? He finds himself at the tomb of Lazarus. He says, roll back the stone. And what does he say? Lazarus, come forth. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. I call them by name and they come out to me exact demonstration of what he said there is that they're at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus was one of his sheep. He, hears he also says that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Going into Passover, what does he become? He becomes the Passover lamb. Pay attention to that. The good shepherd, how does he lay down his life for a sheep? By becoming a sheep. Again, there's the picture of the incarnation. How does God take care of human problem? By becoming a human. The good shepherd, how does he take care of the sheep? By becoming a sheep and offer himself as the sacrificial lamb. Again, there's this incredible, powerful picture that John's drawing our eyes to. And the other one I think that is easily missed is John 10, 13. And he's talking about the hired hands. He's talking about those people who are hired to watch after the sheep, but as soon as trouble comes, they, they tuck tail and they run because it ain't worth it to them. Look at what it says in verse 13 of chapter 10. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So this is a person who gets paid Minimum wage, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. And they go and they take care of the sheep. But what he's saying is because they're a hired hand, they make this calculation in their mind. 
when anything comes up that's threatening, that's going to cost me more than what I'm getting in from this, then I'm out of this and I'm gone. Why? Because I never really had any vested interest in the sheep. All I had a vested interest in was getting paid. And as soon as what I'm getting paid is not equivalent to what it's going to cost me to do this job, I'm out of this. And ultimately, that's exactly what Judas is doing. He's looking at the cost of following Jesus and saying, you know what, I've been pulling up some money, but now he's gone off the rails, he's way over, and, and here he is rebuking me in front of all these people at this dinner. Now, all of a sudden, he's like, this is costing me more than I'm getting out of it. I'm gone. Why? Because he was never interested in the sheep to begin with. He was only interested in himself. So go to verse 7 now in chapter 12. Jesus said, this is his rebuke, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So the question becomes, why did Mary do this? I think that's ultimately what what we're trying to answer there. Some say that Mary was intentionally doing this because she was preparing Jesus' body for burial. And I would say that there's a lot of people, even theologians, commentaries, they all say, well, Mary is beginning to truly believe what Jesus has said over and over again, which is, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna be buried, and then I'm gonna be resurrected from the dead. And they say, well, Mary is anointing his body for burial because she truly believes what he said. And I I understand that, and I can see where they're coming from. I personally don't see it that way, and I'm going to tell you why. I disagree with it because even though Jesus has said to her and many others, if she got it, she's the only one that got it, okay, because no one else saw it coming. They was like totally surprised. We look at it and go, how in the world did they miss it? But they all missed it. The other thing is, if she really thought Jesus was going to die, did she believe that he was going to die but didn't believe he was going to be resurrected? Because if he's going to die and be resurrected within three days, he doesn't need to be anointed for burial. Do you see what I'm saying? Because he's going to come back from the dead. Here's what I believe. I believe that that ointment was for Lazarus that she fully intended. That's something that they had in their family and that was whoever was gonna die, they had that vial for Lazarus. And when Jesus came and brought him from the dead, she was convinced this is the Messiah. And she probably pondered in her mind, she probably had that vase, because think about it, the passage actually tells us that when they went to the tomb and Jesus said, roll the stone back, what did they protest with? They said, oh no, we can't do that because of the, the smell, which means they had not anointed his body yet. She still had that vial. And Jesus says, roll it back. And and he calls him out. So don't you know that she went home that day with that vial? She probably set it down somewhere. And just think about the days that transpired after that, how she walked by and she looked at that and thought, you know what? I didn't have to use that that day. That's amazing. And then she concocted this whole idea, you know what? We're going to honor Jesus. We're going to bring him in. We're going to have a dinner. And in that dinner, I'm going to pour on his body what should have been poured on Lazarus because he brought my brother back from the dead. And I believe this is truly the son of God. And so she planned this whole thing out to honor Jesus in a way that would just bring this incredible recognition and this incredible worship. Not only am I gonna give it to him, I'm gonna pour it all over him. Not only am I gonna pour it on him, I'm gonna let my hair down and I'm gonna wipe the most disgusting part, the dirtiest part of his body with the most glorious and the thing I've put more energy and time into on my body. And I'm gonna show everyone that he is great and I am less. I wanna demonstrate it. So she not only gives the greatest, most prized treasure she has, probably the most expensive thing she owns, but she also gives the most glorious thing that she has 
and applies it in that same situation. She gives the best of her talents. She gives the best of who she is. And I believe that, and I couldn't find anybody who agreed with me very until I found this one guy who was D.A. Carson, which if you know who D.A. Carson is, you're like, that's a good guy to have in your corner. And D.A. Carson in his commentary actually says this, there's no clear evidence that Mary or anyone else understood before the cross that Jesus had to die. She meant this to be an act of costly, humble devotion, but like Caiaphas, she signaled more than she knew. So he's going back and saying, John's actually showing us several of these things where, Jesus, where people are doing things and they don't even realize fully what they're doing. You remember Caiaphas from last week or two weeks ago when he makes this uh, prophecy? John calls it a prophecy, even though Caiaphas doesn't think that it is. And he says, it's better for one person to die than to lose the whole nation. It's better for one person to die for that nation. And John says, yes, and he's the high priest and he's making a prophecy because that's exactly what happened was Jesus died so the whole nation wouldn't have to. So he said something, not fully realizing the sovereignty of God and the weight of that over him. And then again, you see Mary giving this devotion, right? And she gives this devotion. I don't think she fully realizes what she's doing, but she is anointing his body for burial in that sense. But I don't think she realizes that she's doing that. Jesus is the one who brings it up at the end. And then I think in a couple of days from this now, now will be more than a couple of days before we get to it, but a couple of days from now in the text, you're going to have Judas who's going and betraying Jesus. And guess what he's doing? He's fulfilling the will of God. And the sovereignty of God just permeates this entire story. And I think that's one thing that we really have to reflect on and John wants us to. Every single one of us are going to live out the will of God in our life. The question is, where will you be on judgment day? It's not a question of if you're going to live for the will of God. You are. Caiaphas did. Judas did. Mary did. Why? The sovereignty of God, it supersedes human will and intention. He's going to do what he's going to do regardless of what you think you're going to do. I hate God and I'm going to rebel. Perfect. Go ahead. And what you're going to do is end up accomplishing my will because I'm in control. I'm sovereign. You're not. But what happens is the differentiation comes at the end when the sheep are separated from the goats, when the good is separated from the bad. And the difference on that end is those who recognize and adore Christ are welcomed in, and those who rejected him are separated for eternity. All of them accomplish God's will, not because of them, but because of him. Do you see the picture of that? I think John wants us to reflect and say, uh, which side of this are you going to be on? Are you going to be on the side of extravagant, sacrificial love? Or are you going to be on the side of it of, I'll follow Jesus as long as it doesn't cost me a whole lot. And as soon as it costs me a whole lot, I'm out of here. Because I'm in this more for me than I am for him. You see that? Are you like the good shepherd or are you like a hired servant? Which one are you more like? I think that's the question because here's what's scary is John only gives us two options. He doesn't give us a middle that says, I'll, I'll tithe, I'll give my 10%, and you know, I'll serve in the children's ministry, and I think that's probably enough for the salvation that I got, so I think it weighs itself. There's not a middle ground. There's not a gr- middle ground where I've never denied Jesus, and I don't go around and talk bad about him, I'm not selling him out. There's no middle ground. He only leaves, you either have this devotion that is an extravagant love, or you're this hired hand that's in it for yourself, and as soon as it gets tough, you're gone. That's scary to me, 
Now, is there a middle ground? I don't know. I'm just telling you, John doesn't give us a middle ground. He doesn't paint a picture of someone who's in the middle of this. He gives us these two pictures and these two pictures only. It seems that John keeps highlighting God at work and the actions of humanity. I think there's also a theme of substitution here. She gives the vial that was intended for Lazarus. Lazarus comes out of the grave. Jesus goes into the grave. There's a substitution, Jesus for Lazarus. Again, there's that picture of the good shepherd for the sheep. There's this picture of God for humanity. Over and over again, we see these themes of substitution. One man for the entire world, as Caiaphas said. So John is almost yelling at us at this point to emphasize God's plan and God's sovereignty. And I think verse 8 finishes Jesus' statement reminding Judas that, and everyone, really everyone that's listening there, that the poor are always going to be with them, but he's only going to be there for a short time. Now, again, anyone who's merely human, that would be the most arrogant thing that you could possibly say. Oh, the poor, you're going to have them with you all the time. Uh, I'm only here for a little while, so y'all kind of focus in on me. Now, any human saying that, that's the most arrogant thing you could possibly say. But if you are the divine, it's the most truthful thing that you can say. How long in human history has God literally walked the earth as a man? A short, short amount of time. And in that short, short amount of time, I'm telling you, something so fantastic, so magnificent happened that if you didn't pay attention to it, if you didn't give the very best to it, you missed it. You missed that opportunity. And Jesus is drawing their attention to that. It's about costly sacrifice. Once you realize who Jesus is, there's nothing that you would hold back. And Jesus recognizes the incredible gift that Mary gives that day. I think we could go back into uh, our Bibles and find other significant costly gifts. Abraham was willing to sacrifice what? His only son. Was that a picture of what God was going to do as well? Absolutely. You remember the widow? She had given her two mites at at the temple, and Jesus called her out on it and made an example of her and said, listen, this woman has given more than anyone else here today. Why? Because y'all have given out of your abundance and she's given everything that she owns. It's not how much it is. It's the extravagance of what we give because that extravagance says we believe. In each case, there's this recognition of a glory that's higher than our own. So I want to leave you with three thoughts today. And these are three very heavy thoughts. Your temptation is to walk out that door and to go back to your life as normal. But I want to challenge you to put this in front of yourself this week and keep asking yourselves these questions over and over again. First one is more of a statement than it is a question. God deserves our best sacrifice, not our leftovers and our afterthoughts. If your prayer life consists of when it's convenient for you to pray, you don't understand who Jesus is. If your prayer life consists of when you're driving to work and driving home, or uh, I'm going to throw up a prayer before I lay my head down, but you're asleep before you ever get to amen, you don't understand extravagant, devoted love. God deserves our best, not our leftovers. If you're giving, I'm not talking about to the church. I mean, church is included in that, obviously, but we're not going to pass around the KFC buckets tonight trying to make you feel guilty and milk you out of everything you brought with you tonight. That's not the point of this. The point of this is to understand perspective of who we are and who God is. But I'm going to use that as an example. If, if, if what you give, whether it's a tithe or in any other capacity, if you only give out of what's left at the end of the month, you don't understand extravagant love. 
And I'm not telling you, we don't need any money as a church. Like, we're not in the hole. <laughs> Nobody said, hey, you need to really push this because we're going under budget. That has nothing. I could care less if you give to this church or not. I could. Do you hear me? I could care less. It's not my business. That's your business. But it is my responsibility to teach God's word. And God's word says when we understand who he is, there's an extravagance in the way that we give to him. Second thing is this. What does your worship look like? Is your worship better when the circumstances surrounding the worship meet your needs? When the worship leader is your favorite one who sings the songs that you like at the volume that you like it in, you know, if it's more hymns than it is praise or more praise than it is hymns, is your worship more centered on you and your preferences or is your worship centered more on God and the truth that you proclaim about him? Is your worship and sacrificial giving really about sacrificial giving? Or is it about what I can afford to give this month, this week, this situation, whatever it may be? What does your worship look like? Again, we have two pictures that are given to us. Which one is yours closest to? The third thing is this. How much is Jesus worth to you? Mary said, He's worthy of all of my glory, and he's worthy of the most expensive thing that I own, that I would just pour it out on him. Again, this ain't a church thing, because she didn't give that money to the church. She poured it out on Jesus. Many people wasteful on Jesus. I don't know what that looks like for everybody. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't, that's only the Holy Spirit can lead you to understand what that means for you. But the point is, we're given that picture and we're given the picture of Judah sitting back going, he's not worth that. He's not worth that much. He's not worth that costly sacrifice. You know what? We could have done way more by focusing all of that somewhere else. How much is Jesus worth to you? Let's pray together.